Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of Titanic Minute, your daily podcast where we discuss the movie Titanic minute by minute. I'm your co-host Rob, and today I'm joined as always by my good friends Joe and Duff. Yep, uh, oh. we got exactly what you need to get you through hump day, mm-hmm. a beautiful heart of the ocean. <laughs> Tell That's them who right. our guest is. Yes, our guest today is we're joined by our heart of the ocean today, Colin. Hello, thanks for having me on. I'm happy to be with you guys today. Yeah, thanks thanks a lot for coming on. And uh, in this minute, minute 13 of Titanic Minute, Rose calls Brock. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. another, <laughs> I almost swore, another phone call. Minute two of phone calls. Uh, I will say, I will say this minute does start, the very beginning of this minute starts with Rose saying, I'll be goddamned. Which whoa, whoa. I know, I know, but this is exactly what Brock just said when he saw the heart of the ocean a couple minutes ago. So you know, it's a callback. Yeah, uh, true, and it's the last moment of good writing in this minute. <laughs> <laughs> this yes. is the, this is absolutely abysmal. The writing in this. Well, I know that we brought, that's why we brought this heart of the ocean, a writer himself. I, uh, you know, I actually went and um, found the script. Uh, I was at IMDb, and I don't know if this is an official script, but I wanted to look up the script because I had to see if there were um, directions, actor directions in there outside of cuts and the, the classic interior, exterior. I wanted to see if they had directions for how they wanted these people to deliver these lines um, because I couldn't believe it when I watched this. It is truly so utterly stunted. And then as I was reading it, I kept thinking of different things like how he'd be, he'd be like, all right, make it quick, lady. What do you got here? You know, like and <laughs> he's just cutting her off so, so stiltedly. And it, it's just so poorly, poorly written. I couldn't believe the actors, though, in spite of the writing, I couldn't believe the actors delivered the lines like that. That was the thing that was shocking to me. He's yelling, he's like, make it quick, old lady. How about you cram it? And she's like, basically like, hey, Sonny, here's the thing. And they're, they're just like so immediately combative with each other. I, I didn't know what was going on. And when I'm looking at the script here, I actually didn't see any actor's directions, which was shocking to me. Well, yeah, so uh, it's, it's, that, it's not so much Brock, it's the other guy that gets me. I, Bobby I know, Beal. Colin, Bobby Beal. Okay, that's a perfect name for that dork. <laughs> uh, like Colin and I chatted a little bit off the air. <laughs> Colin, can you break down just the the physical nature of his performance, old, old Double B? So this 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 is my favorite part. It is. I, I want to say first off, I couldn't believe. I mean, it's a picture from 1997. I couldn't believe how utterly 90s it was. Um, <laughs> just the way they were moving and dressed and talking and kind of like carrying themselves. It was like that last vestige of machismo. Um, and the guy, the actor who played Bobby Buell, reminded me so much of, and I, I should have looked up the actor's name, he reminded me of the father from the Transformers movies. 
um, just something about that guy, how he was always just knocking stuff over in the scenery and yelling. <laughs> but the one thing he did here when he stops, and I've, I've got the printout, the one page of this one minute here, when, uh, where is it? He says, no, trust me, you want to take this call. And he reaches his finger out and he, yes. gives, he gives him the come hither. <laughs> <laughs> he nods deep and he gives him the come hither finger. And that, that just like takes you totally out of the scene. I couldn't believe it. I've never in my life done the come hither finger. <laughs> Not only before he does the come hither thing, he puts his like hand up like his fist up to his his ear to be like, you know, a telephone call. Like he sort of <laughs> pantomimes it. I'm convinced that that he came uh, out of an adult film. Like <laughs> that that guy acted in a, it's totally from a different movie and using special effects. They brought him in from like a late night Cinemax movie. And he's telling his frat buddies that they're going to want to answer the door this time. Trust me. I am here to fix on cobble. <laughs> he's doing the like the, the hang loose mahalo thing where he's got the, the thumb and the pinky by his yes. ear and mouth with the phone is for you. Come hither. Yeah, you're going to want, you won't believe what the pizza delivery guy has for you this time. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> here's my thing of Bobby. Here's what he is. He's a lingerer. You know what I mean? Like people, we've all worked with them where like you have a conversation and the, and the conversation's over and they're still lingering in your space and they're waiting. Bobby Buell, during this entire uh, movie, lingers around and leers and follows Brock around. So from that perspective, he's like the, the little dog, like the old Looney Tunes cartoons where there's the big bulldog and the little dog who's jumping around him the whole time like, huh, right? Am I right? Am I right, boss? Am I right? <laughs> he stands there with his hands on his hips nodding and he kind of like parts his coat and he's just nodding. He's like, did I tell you? Did I tell you you want to take this call? It's just so uncomfortable. Am I right or am I right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right? Right? There's also a very James Cameron-y line at the beginning of this when uh, Brock's like, we're launching. Can't you see these submersibles? Like, it's James Cameron being like, you see? We actually have real submersibles. We're on a boat. We're really doing this. They cost a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> I may well, never work in Hollywood, Hollywood again, again because of them. <laughs> and speaking, yeah. speaking of money, like, how, does, how, do, how do they make this call? That's one of the most wonderful things to me, too. Oh, the phone is ringing. We just have this call from this woman here. You got to take it. Old lady on the phone. How yeah, did she get their number? That's a great question. How long do you think it took old Rose and her granddaughter just calling information and like how many hours being on the phone did it take to get to this? Well, and that's, that's the fun part here is that we're talking, we're talking satellite phones, right? <laughs> like this is pre cell phone era. Yeah. 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 So this is what 97. So yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I'm guessing Rose had Lizzie do all this work, right? Until they made the connection, because there's no way Rose is going to stay around for, you know, she's 100 years old. She's not going to deal with all that nonsense. Ro Rose, Rose had, had to had choose to between choose. eating or getting that phone call that day. <laughs> <laughs> she she, 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 uh, she uh, didn't get fed because she was spending too much time trying to make that connection instead of making the required number of uh, pots she needs to make in order for her granddaughter to feed her. <laughs> the quota <laughs> Lizzie, Lizzie dials the number Rose is in the back turning the big crank for the power generator to get the fan going the handset, the handheld Titanic is really a movie about elder abuse more than <laughs> oh man so, 
So, okay, so let's, so Rose, she gets on the phone, and she's got so much sass here when she's like, I was wondering if you found the heart of the ocean yet. Um, and this is sort of, like, meant to be, hey, man, Rose is in the know, right? Like, she knows about the heart of the ocean, so clearly, you know, she's she's tied in. But, like, here's my question. Does that really prove anything? The fact that she knows of the existence of the heart of the heart of the ocean. Well, this is why this this is why it hit me with that that make it quick old lady. Like, okay, what are you? But you're bothering me. I'm dropping submarines in the ocean here. I am super super important. Why? Are you, and this this goes back to Joe. What you were saying a couple of episodes ago of how James Cameron is basically writing like a 13 year old's vision of what adult men are like. <laughs> I, I am important. I am dropping this in the ocean. Make it quick. That's a good point, and and but like in the in this movie, she this this fact that she knows about the heart of the ocean is sort of meant to be proof of this. But like you know, from what we find out later in the movie about the heart of the ocean is it's like this. Uh, it's famous, this, <laughs> it, right? Yeah, it's this diamond that was owned by like Louis the Sixteenth or whatever, and then cut into a heart shape after the revolution or something. Yeah, uh, nineteen twelve rose. <laughs> knows just all these facts off the top of her head she's like oh yeah the heart of the ocean blah 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 <laughs> and then yeah so it's it's obviously enough that um rose who is american knew about it and it's like oh i've heard of this so and her being elderly she certainly had the full set of the encyclop- encyclopedia britannica to look this up <laughs> in too maybe there was a story about it in reader's digest <laughs> The Saturday oh. Evening Post. <laughs> so Louis, so so help me here. Louis the Sixteenth was a previous owner, according yeah. to the story. Yeah, yeah, because okay. it doesn't exist in real life. Like, and I mean, this thing doesn't actually exist. Sure. So Louis the Sixteenth, of course, who sat and presided through the decline of the French monarchy, right? So, so there's wonderful luck, a wonderful stroke of luck with that stone. You can buy uh, incredible replicas on Amazon for $11. <laughs> the really how this should have ended is revolutionaries should have beheaded bros on the ship with the guillotine. That's how <laughs> I think it should have ended. For, like, uh, I, I, I guess um, she, she does seem, like, her estate reeks of wealth and privilege, and I think that that's the way to bring this. Like the real story is is of the diamond. That's how we bring it full circle, right? Because like the Hope Diamond. So okay, so the Heart of the Ocean Diamond, which isn't a real thing, is sort of loosely based off the Hope Diamond, which uh, apparently originated in India. Uh, P.S. Here's by the way, guys, I'm reading Wikipedia. Uh, it was purchased in 1666 by a French gem merchant. It was cut and yielded the French blue, which Tavernier sold to King Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, I love how you keep calling him a Louis. Yeah, I was gonna let it slide once, but I can't twice. <laughs> because I can, Colin here, is just screaming with his mic <laughs> muted right now. And here's how frustrating it is: they say it in the movie. Just say it. You, you don't have to guess. Just say it like he does in the movie, or she does in the movie. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Uh, so of, of note, though, there, Rob, that Louis XIV, of course, the Sun King, right? Louis XIV is the guy who um, 
you could say really started to pave the path toward the revolution. He's the guy who built Versailles and all of this terrible opulence with the, the gilded gold everywhere and everything. So Louis the Fourteenth has a lot of baggage. Let's put it that way. You want to talk about wealth. Louis the Fourteenth has a lot of baggage. Yeah. I mean, now that we've, been, we've shown how little I know about French history and the French Revolution, um, but like the point still stands that like this is a diamond that is not like only a handful of people know about it. It's a, it's a diamond that is roughly the size of an egg, which is <laughs> 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 pretty big deal. Yeah, it's pretty silly. But um, again, uh, whatever his name is can't be right. Lenny or whatever. Larry. What is his name? Bobby. Again? Bobby Buell. No, no, no. Harry Knowles. Oh, oh, oh Lewis. Lewis. Yeah, Lewis. Lewis can't be right. So, so the the heart of the ocean is it's a MacGuffin, right? By definition. Uh, I so explain that. Explain, explain uh, where you're going on that. I mean, so yeah, for people who don't know, there's a a film industry term and amongst filmmakers film scholars called a MacGuffin and I believe it's uh I'm paraphrasing but I think that a MacGuffin is something that sets the plot in motion but is not really of primary concern to the audience uh does that sound about right Joe yeah Colin yeah, it doesn't yeah. really. It doesn't ultimately matter to the theme or the outcome of the story. Yeah, uh, a good example is uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Ark is kind of a MacGuffin because you're not really in that invested in the Ark. Uh, the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, uh, the, uh, uh, the the money. The, what are the what are the Notorious is usually cited as the prime example. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember it's what like, the, it's like a nuclear thirty nine steps, thing, right? Uh, I, well, I think there's a lot of Hitchcock movies. I mean, yeah. uh, the money in Psycho is what sets the plot in motion. But, you know, you don't really care about the money after half an hour or so. Um, so, yeah. So, it, I, I thought that The Heart of the Ocean was a MacGuffin because we're, you know, we're kind of interested in it, but we don't really care that much. It's just kind of driving the plot. Especially once we go back in time. Then it doesn't matter at all because we don't want to go back to the present desperately. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, it's basically a fulcrum that keeps things going. You know, it um, pulls people together, gives a little story, and spins it off like a top. Is what you're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah basically. I'd... Yeah, I think that's a good way to, to explain it. It's a a, a plot device. Um, the rug. And then in we the big Lebowski. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. a good one. The, the rug. The rug really tied the room together. <laughs> Um, so we find out along with Brock, I think that's important because as the audience, you find this out as well, that this old lady that we've been seeing the last couple minutes is the woman in the picture, in the sketch. This is sort of our first time finding out. And so here's, as we learn later in this movie, this moment when she is sketched is an incredibly important moment in her life. Not even to that point, but just in her life in general. You would think that if you were on a ship that sunk to the bottom of the ocean and you lost the person you loved in it, and then you were like, you know, making some pot and <laughs> and all of a sudden you saw on the TV some guy like showing that exact same sketch 
that like you know mean so much in in your life like i almost think her reaction from the previous minute should have been a lot more emotional right well it was like 90 years later i guess but that's a that's a stoic generation (laughs) i mean that's true she did she was on the titanic and it sunk and like so in the in the scheme of things like she's gone through a lot yeah. Yeah, I think there's 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 facts to deal with there too. You know, when you're talking about being 90 years later and this thing is waved in front of you that I mean, say, you know, I can't remember 15 years ago anymore. Um, but you think about something like this that is such a deeply seated emotional part of your life, you know, when you talk about not being able to remember 15, 20, 25 years ago, these stages you go through, right? And it I would imagine that it might be shocking, yet kind of this accepted fact, and she's cheeky with it, which kind of gets to that commentary about the MacGuffin and things that just move the plot forward. This is how you drive them in to make a a modern-day relatable connection to this story. So she sees, you know, this line, she's, oh, yes, the woman in the picture is me. You know, and it's just, it's kind of that, that cheeky statement of fact, and it's really explosive, um, of course, it, it cuts so quickly after that, not to jump ahead on you too much, but the scene cuts so quickly after that. When she hits that, you know, he says, you've got my attention. Can you tell me who the woman is? And she's just like, yeah, that's me, which I guess, Rob, to your point, it's not staggeringly emotional, but it's dredging up something for way, way down deep and forgotten when you start particularly talking about it being 80, 90 years ago. That, that's yeah. where they should have cut to the past. It should have been, it's me, smash cut to oh. a graphic match of her face when she's younger and it's on the Titanic. That's what I would have done if I was editing this. Although you miss Lewis's shirt, we'll see later this week. <laughs> and we do get um, like brief glimpses of that when she gets to see the photo in person in a minute or two or whatever That's it is. True. Although, I mean, maybe, you know, let's just speak from personal experiences, but like we all remember the first time we were sketched nude. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, kindergarten, you know, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is uh, in a podcast of dark things, Colin. That might have been the darkest thing I've, we've ever had. To sit on. <laughs> Can I posit a theory here? Yeah, let's hear it. This movie is really just an elaborate excuse for why James Cameron keeps leaving his wives for younger women. Okay, explain. So we we start. Our, our first view of Rose is her as a 19-year-old, beautiful young woman. And then he immediately, as quickly as he can, cross-cuts it with a grotesque elderly <laughs> woman. And he's basically telling the audience, listen, this is what they turn into. Can you blame me? I'm... Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Would you look at how many knickknacks she has in her house? It's <laughs> Uh, the Pomeranian. Uh. <laughs> Next yeah. thing you know, you got bad art hanging everywhere, an annoying little dog, her granddaughter that won't move out, <laughs> once, and once sagging your house, skin. Once your house looks like a Pier 1, it's time to move on. <laughs> pier 1. <laughs> but this plate collection, I'll tell you what. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Uh, do either of you guys? I, I only thing I have on this minute is that we have this minute ends with the helicopter, you know, over the water. Which whenever I hear 
or much like we talked about uh, yesterday about the the pottery sequence, the helicopter scene over the water with the score swelling, it's just Jurassic Park. That's all I ever think about. I, yeah. I have the Jurassic Park theme song queued up on the computer here in front of me. That the way, they, honest to God, they cuts there, and I just immediately went boom, Jurassic Park. Absolutely agree with you. Yeah, yeah. One fun fact from the commentary, uh, Gloria Stewart did re- really didn't want to get in the helicopter, and James Cameron made her. <laughs> He's trying to kill her. It, it's it, it's funny you say that because I listened to the cast and crew one, and she talks about it, and she was like, being in that helicopter was the most disgusting, dirty thing I had to do in this movie. <laughs> what? Uh, Cameron just, uh, it's... He doesn't even go that into it. He just gives. He's like, "Yeah, she really didn't want to get in that helicopter, but I made her." It's like, oh, so good, good for you, James Cameron. I think the shot of her in the helicopter when it's flying is like a compositor CGI shot. But like they did, they only. I think her agreement was she would go in the helicopter while it was landed and come out of it, but she wouldn't fly in it. So I'm guessing that composite shot we see at the beginning must be you know a combination of things can we get uh, some fans <laughs> to cross cut but w- to make it seem like she's talking to jeff goldblum in that helicopter <laughs> <laughs> just a simple request well talking okay so talking about that one of the things that has resonated with me reading this scene watching the scene reading this script is how badly and desperately i want to rewrite this now um Talking, I was making the, the bad joke early about the, all right, make it quick, old lady, or, you know, I, I don't have any time for this. I want to rewrite the entirety of Titanic in the way we hear that crappy writing. You know what I mean? Uh, basically, it should be like um, uh, Humphrey Bogart should be reading all the lines. Or, all right, lady. Or take the take the Brock guy and make it Brock Samson from Brett Venture Brothers. Edit him in there. <laughs> it would be interesting to have someone be as cool as Brock Lovett as James Cameron thinks he is. <laughs> That's exactly it. Like I don't want to rewrite it to make it good. I want to rewrite it to get the the rewrite with the hidden subtext in there. I'm thinking like uh, Ryan Gosling and Drive in the Scorpion Jacket. <laughs> I, I will say that, like, we sort of ragged on the first 13 minutes of this movie for many reasons. But this is, Joe, your idea that once she's on the phone and she says, that's me, that's when we should go back to, to 1912 makes a lot of sense. Because that, that that's like a, uh, we've found out everything we need to know. Now yeah. let's go back to the past. This is the, the first moment where you, I think you're right. This is where we can cut out, like, the next, you know, few minutes that we see in this movie. Yeah, it's a preface, essentially. Here's a question for everyone. What if there was no stuff in 1997? I I think the movie would be pretty close to still having the emotional heft it does if we cut out all the Heart of the Ocean stuff. Completely unnecessary. So the thing that would definitely improve it would be you would wonder if rose survives like you know rose lives right like i mean you know she she survives because we see an old version of her yeah i i think there's there's one thing that you can't discount in that though from the perspective of telling this story 
today and and you know that was that was 20 years ago right 1997 um yeah i i looked it up because i i had forgotten um that the titanic was was rediscovered in 1985 i thought you were gonna say it was real (laughs) (laughs) the titanic was real guys i'll tell you what uh no it it was rediscovered in 1985 and that surprised me for a moment and then i immediately remembered like the rush of information around that and how relevant that was at the time and that the how the lore came back to really build kind of that historic mystery so i I think there is something to and a credibility to telling the story like he did because what it does is right away it taps that modern audience and puts them into that mindset of the lore of finding titanic and and kind of diving into it and reconnecting with all of those ancient memories and, and it's I, also an, it was an excuse for james cameron to go down there in a submarine let's not true. forget that exactly i i will say that the the actual scenes of the titanic mixed with models are it, that is very cool um mm-hmm. despite having to put up with brock and lewis and the old lady well you could have just shown all that footage with no talking and just have the opening credits over it yeah good uh like I said, it you yeah, lose whatever. very little, if anything, by totally eliminating the 1997 plot. The All right, we're starting to stretch on time here, so let's let's do can our I you know make our, one one quick point. Oh, be, sure, uh, of course, yeah, uh, real quick. So one of the things that I think actually I think especially Bill Paxton is usually for the most part actually pretty good in this movie. I think one of the reasons in this scene in particular it's so wooden, as you mentioned, Colin, is like they have they're on a ship. With like submersibles and all this stuff going on, which is incredibly loud, I learned that there was over 100 days of ADR in this movie. Like they spent oh, three months re-recording man. audio, re-recording dialogue. That's <laughs> that explains it. <laughs> yeah, that does. Okay, so go ahead, Joe. I'm sorry. Uh, so we we often talk. Uh, we talked to our last heart of the ocean. <laughs> I still laugh thinking that we call people that. <laughs> Uh, their their memories of Titanic when it came out, what kind of impact it had on their lives. I, I know, based on our discussions, your um, experience with it was much different from our guests from last week. You want to talk a little bit about way back in 1997 Titanic when Mania Titanic Mania hit your life? Um, let's see. I was in my early 20s and realized that Star Wars prequels would be coming out, and that was probably pretty important to me. Um, I, uh, I had what, an op- what an optimistic age that <laughs> Right? Was. I'll tell you what, boy. Um, no, I, uh, I think part of it was, you know, in college and, like, college football at the time and the party scene, It, I think Titanic was... Now, I, I'm hedging my comments here because this is... We're 20 years later. Um... Titanic was a girly movie. You know what I mean? It it came out as like it it wasn't a classic story the way it was positioned. It had all of the Celine Dion stuff. I read that the VHS was released while it was still out. Um, probably because it was so successful. And I think I had a little bit of a contrarian attitude toward it. Um, so for me, Titanic was immediately to be avoided. It was, uh, I don't want to say like a classic chick flick, right? And and I, I don't want to use that as too much of a pejorative, but it wasn't like a rom-com or anything like that. It wasn't a historical adventure, but there was something about it that was just kind of cloaked outside of films that I wanted to see at the time, and I didn't see it because of that. So then after time passed, I'll tell you what, 
that to me became a badge of honor to have not seen Titanic. And it was an awful lot more fun to say, oh no, I haven't seen that than it was to be one of the millions who were like, oh yeah, I've seen that. Of course I've seen that. So I have not seen this picture in its entirety. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I I was the same way for a long time. I think we all have movies that are like that, where you yeah. sort of smugly are like, "Yeah, I've never seen it." Um, so what percentage of the movie have you seen? Would you say how how many minute. uh, how many minutes long is it? Uh, uh one ninety four. Is that right? So so I've what? seen yeah. one one hundred and ninety fourth of the picture. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, just to be clear, just to be clear, I, I this is, um, Colin, first off, I'm going to say, I think this has been fantastic. You've been excellent. But I just want to say, last week we have we had Claire on, our first Heart of the Ocean, this girl who, like, who like sketched out her own version of the soundtrack, uh, like, album cover, and and then we go the next week. She saw, like, it, she we saw it, what, seven or eight times in the theater? Yeah, and the next week, Joe's like, we should have Colin on, who's seen one minute of this movie. I, t- I totally did that on purpose. I have watched that one minute a number of times now in the last couple days, though, I'll tell you that. I'm not, I'm not even mad, because I'm impressed with the long con you guys play. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to watch it now, more or less, or did this have no impact? Um... Yeah, I think, you know, and I'll be honest, the, I think I had a, a cognizance of how the story was constructed. Um, seeing this this 90s punch-up, Rob, you used the word wooden before, I'm so glad you did. See, the way it was delivered is hilarious to me. It is so 90s, just let me dive into this story. That's interesting to me. Um I am intrigued to see it. Like I say, I knew about the historical context. Watching this minute of it really kind of plays up a little greater interest there of, so you guys were talking about whether or not you should have that part of the story. I like it, and that makes it interesting to me, and I can absolutely see how that could be a strong emotional construct to make the rest of the picture interesting. I, I do think this movie is gonna the, the the like popularity and and critical view of this movie is going to be an interesting thing, interesting thing to track over time because you know during pre-production it was a joke like it was a punchline and then it came out and it was like the biggest movie ever literally and then it you know goes in the Oscars and wins a ton of awards like I think it it ties the record for most wins and also for most nominations and then you had like this incredible backlash which colin mentioned which i was probably part of at a certain point i definitely Um, was i think the backlash started even before it was out of theaters which granted was like the better part of a year if not a year absolutely (laughs) and and that that celine dion song was you know again that celine dion was she became so popular but that song was so omnipresent it was around that same time was uh shared do you believe in remember that do you believe in life after love and those songs were just you could not escape them but they absolutely were not going to resonate for a 20 21 22 year old male in america at that time and, and the amazing thing is, let's say you really love that Celine Dion song and you decided to see this movie, you'd have to wait 190 minutes to actually hear that song. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, and that was... Because it only right. plays in the credits. That, that was very much a part of the time, too, when, you know, and soundtracks, movie soundtracks have always been huge, right? If it's an original score or a compilation soundtrack, whatever. But there were a lot of soundtracks around that time that 
were hooked around one super mega hit adult contemporary song like that. And and yeah. not only would it be built around the song, the song would be specifically written and often summarize, if not themes, actual characters in the movie. And yeah, I think of Kiss from a Rose from Seal right away when you mentioned yeah, that. Yeah, uh, uh, Brian uh, Adams I- from the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Yep. Oh, we've talked about that, Duff. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I could do an entire podcast about 90s movie songs, to be quite frank. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to miss a thing. Uh, oh, yeah, that's not a good I, one. I, I Will Always Love You is kind of a not technically correct, since it was a Dolly Parton song, but it was, it was really reworked for that movie with that in mind. Um, yeah, it's a great point. Uh, we're sort of, we're sort of, we're sort of pretty long here. I want to make sure, uh, Colin, do you have any, uh, any last, uh, final things you want to say about your one minute of Titanic you've seen? 60 seconds of Titanic. I just wanted to hammer again the, uh, the, the finger, the, the hook, (laughs) the come hither hook from Bobby Buell. And all I could think of was that immediately segueing into the George Michael careless whisper sax solo. And that's been popping through my nose so much this over and over and over. Man. Oh this is gosh. probably the most anyone has ever talked about that character of Bobby yes. Buell. Oh, but- he just disgusts me. <laughs> 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 it's the one time in the movie so far that he's not wearing sunblock. Uh, I think that <laughs> I'm willing to have Colin on again, but only if he watches the whole movie. And it would be kind of interesting, and this might be the only person on Earth we could get for this, to have someone who's experiencing Titanic for the first time in 2017 or 18 to uh, to, to weigh in on it as a first-timer. That might be fun. Uh, that would be yeah. fun. How about this, Colin? If you finish... If you watch Titanic, you can be on on one of the credits minutes, so then you can tell us what you thought about it. Oh, it's a great, oh, idea. It's a great idea. Yeah, terrific. I, I, I am interested in watching it now, and I thought it would uh, kind of pop up on my list here. I was putting the Rambo First Blood and Rambo First Blood Part 2 were rising up my i got to watch those movies again, but I think we can, we can make Titanic happen here. Because <laughs> everybody's always thinking about Rambo movies, I figure. <laughs> We've gone a long time. Colin, I want to thank you a lot for being on here and doing a ton of research on this one minute. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It was it was a lot of fun to join you. Um, happy thank to watch you, it. Thank you, Colin. And uh, we'll have you back uh, like minute 192 or something <laughs> when we get towards the end of the movie. Uh, but until then, uh, we will be back tomorrow with uh, Titanic Minute 14. Bye.